The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, New Year's Eve, December 31st. Today, we're reaching into the archives, way back to bring you an episode from March 3rd, 2012, the fifth ever episode of the Lawfare Podcast. In this episode, Ritika Singh, former Lawfare Associate Editor, interviews Missy Cummings, who works on aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, to talk about drones, and more generally, about robots on the battlefield. It's a great interview, well worth your time over a holiday weekend. Welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. I'm Benjamin Wittes. Our subject today is drones, drones, and more drones. And with us to discuss them is, well, just about the coolest person on the face of the planet. Missy Cummings is a professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, where she directs the Humans and Automation Laboratory. She also was one of the Navy's first female fighter pilots, Oftentimes, in Lawfare's discussions of targeted killing and military robotics, the robotics itself tends to get short shrift. Yet what machines can do, what they can't do, and what they will soon be able to do is key to a lot of these discussions. Missy sat down recently with Ritika Singh to discuss these questions. We spend a lot of time on Lawfare uh, thinking about and debating the use of drones. You actually design these systems. And um, you came about doing so in a, in a very interesting and surprising sort of way. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to this field and what you do within it? So back in the mid-90s, I was flying F-18s for the U.S. Navy. And prior to that, I had flown A-4s, which are an older aircraft. And it's a manual control plane, meaning when, I, when you move the stick left or right, the plane goes left or right. But when I started flying the F-18, this was a fly-by-wire plane, completely controlled by the computer. In fact, the pilot was really only there to kind of nudge the aircraft along. And so that started to raise my awareness that computers were starting to outpace us in some areas. And then when you go to the aircraft carrier and you see that these planes can land themselves perfectly without any human input, 
that's kind of an eye-opener because for a Navy pilot, that's actually what makes us better than all other pilots on the planet, including the Air Force, that is that it takes the human to land. But once you actually take the human out of the loop and the computer can then land itself on the deck of a carrier, then what does that make us, right? And then kind of in concert with the developments in the tactical tomahawk community, which is a precision surgical strike weapon that can be launched a thousand miles away from its intended target with about a meter worth of accuracy. I thought the writing was on the wall, for me at least, in the early to mid-90s, that fighter pilots were on the decline or would be soon, and in fact, it kind of raises the question about pilots in general, how much are pilots needed? What do you do now, or what have you done since? Well, then, after I got out of the military, I um, went back to school, got my Ph.D., and now I'm at MIT, the director of the Humans and Automation Lab, and we develop essentially ground control stations to help humans control unmanned vehicles, particularly unmanned aerial vehicles, also called drones. In our first podcast, Shane Harris said that, you know, we are closer to developing truly autonomous weapons than we think. I'd love your perspective. What do you think? I disagree with that because I disagree with the use of purely autonomous. There are degrees of autonomy. Something that is purely autonomous, that kind of system would be able to form its own goal, go out and do its own mission, and then come back and basically uh, then decide what its next goal would be. That's pure autonomy. Particularly in warfare, humans, at least for the foreseeable future, will always be in the loop. So even if it's a human deciding what the goal is and expressing that goal to the machine, for example, go find Osama bin Laden and bomb wherever he is, uh, that's still semi-autonomous because the human is actually directing the goal. Now, I will agree probably with the probably his underlying meaning of the mission is the systems today are much more capable, particularly in the research Uh, development fields in the universities, for example, maybe in the government labs, we actually see huge advances in technology capabilities. For example, air-to-air refueling. Right now, we can, we've, at MIT and other places, can show that two planes can refuel themselves better without a human in the loop. So when we start to move forward into these higher automation with, and when you say advanced autonomy, what you really mean is you're putting reasoning capabilities. Air-to-air refueling is pure automation. Having a UAV decide who the bad guy is and then bomb that bad guy, that would be autonomy. So there are things that unmanned systems cannot do, you know, and, and a human always needs to be involved. Um, but what are the things that unmanned systems, you know, you think can do better than humans? So it really kind of goes on what we call a skill, rule, knowledge-based continuum. So. If there's something that requires a high degree of skill and practice, let's say when you, do, when you see production lines, automotive production lines, there's not a lot of guesswork involved. Each part needs to go in a very specific place, and that's why a lot of the automotive lines have been turned over to robots, because it's a high degree of skill that requires a lot of precision, and in fact, that's what computers do best. They can work faster, they can work with tighter degrees of precision, given some numerical inputs. Where computers slash automation slash autonomy really starts to fall apart is when you require judgment in the face of uncertainty, where you might not have all the variables. And this is really what we're talking about with warfare. 
But you could also say that's one of the reasons why we can't completely automate an air traffic control system either, right? You know, a weather front will come in through D.C., and then I've been at National many times where, uh, you know, a 20-minute thunderstorm shut the whole airport down, mm-hmm. right? But, and the reason that happens is because we can't figure out what to do or where to place planes or how to get them all out because it, it makes the problem a lot tougher. That requires a lot more decision-making at what we call the knowledge level. So wherever you require knowledge, decisions being made that require a judgment, require the use of experience, computers are not good at that and will likely not be good at that for a long time. Could you talk a little bit about whether the issues of autonomy that arise with these drone technologies are new issues or whether they're issues that have been around for a long time that we just haven't been discussing? I believe that fundamentally one of the issues when it comes down to how we're using these uh, UAVs and warfare comes down to this idea of remote warfare, right? We can park a UAV 10,000 feet over an intended target, wait for somebody to come outside the door, and then launch a Hellfire missile. But that technology has actually been around a long time. We've been able to do it with a tactical Tomahawk missile since the 90s. We've been able to do it from aircraft since before, since the 70s, for example. So it's really just been the development of sensors that have allowed us to continue to back that point of intended killing even more remotely. You know, now we can do this from Las Vegas, uh, 7,000 miles around the planet. So it's not, it's nothing new. And in fact, there's a great um, uh, researcher named Dave Grossman who his research lab is called the Killology Lab. And he has a great uh, graph that shows the resistance to killing as a a function of distance. You know, we've had people find it easier to kill the further are you away from the enemy, and that's that. That was why we came up with the sword, and that's why we came up with an arrow, bow right. and arrow, and that's why we came up with bombs, and that's what, and then fighter jets, and then strategic bombers, and now tactical tomahawk missiles, and now UAVs that can do it from halfway around the planet. So, I think it, when it's, it speaks to human nature that we don't really like to kill, and if we are going to kill, we'd rather do it from far away. Do you think that? this is the future of, of warfare? Do you think that it's inevitable? I mean, you, you set your own experience with the Navy um, as part of the reason that you came to, to designing these systems because you thought it was inevitable. Um, I do think it's a, one aspect, one inevitable aspect of warfare. I think that, again, just as um, Dave Grossman would tell you, humans would prefer to do the dirty work from further away. So I think that you're going to see an increase in technologies. Because of that, but also because it's cheaper to operate, it's much cheaper to operate an unmanned vehicle as opposed to a manned vehicle. Uh, If for no other reason, then we value the lives of our pilots, right? We don't want to have to see somebody shot down in in a hostile nation. It's not going to make all of warfare go this way. I think the military is actually pretty good about understanding you'll always need boots on the ground. We hear that, right? You know, although I have seen... Not the government, but I have seen some academic researchers propose that they could develop humanoid robots that could stand at security checkpoints and interview people and determine whether or not they're lying or you know do language translation. A lot of that is very science fiction, although you could actually see a place where we probably could come up with some technology that would help in language translation. But it's going to be a long time, not in my lifetime, that we're going to be able to see humanoid robots actually interview people in a meaningful fashion at a security checkpoint. 
45 countries now um, have acquired uh, drone technology. Can you talk a little bit about how these countries use this technology and um, how far you expect them to go? I bet it's quickly? more than that. I bet it's way more than 45. Really? Because you can buy UAVs on the internet right now. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that as researchers do. We would prefer to buy these vehicles because they are just a flying platform than have to do the, the development ourselves. So uh, I would say, yes, they're out there, they're in high numbers, and they don't have to be as complex as some of the ones that we've seen, the recent one that went down in Iran. You know, that's actually incredibly advanced. All you really need to do is get a little Cessna airplane, or you could even get a, a remote-controlled airplane and weaponize it, and somebody could be flying it uh, for just a few hundred dollars in, in today's world. So I don't think people should be amazed. It's not that technology is growing so rapidly, I think... It's that it's just easier to get. It's easier to get. And people are actually starting to understand, you know, well, now you can buy a UAV at Brookstone that you can fly from your iPhone. Right. So that's pretty darn easy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that in terms of what other countries want them for, far and away, it's for the surveillance aspect. We want to be able to see what we would not have been able to see before or have persistent surveillance, whether it is we're talking about military surveillance I'm sure a lot of countries are using these systems to surveil their own people for whatever reasons. Israel's been doing it for a long time. That's right. Oh, yeah, they're the leaders. I would say, particularly in Europe they are, but you could argue that um, it wasn't until Israel showed the the successful proof of concept then the U.S. got on board. So, uh, But even in this country, we have police forces that use these to do surveillance uh, for whatever their uh, first responder tactics are. To a much lesser degree, you will see a few countries weaponizing UAVs. Iran is one of them. China is one of them. Again, it's actually not that difficult to weaponize. If you're a country that that has any advanced technology, it's not that difficult to weaponize a UAV. From what you're saying, it sounds like we, the U.S., are not the leaders of this curve of of acquiring drone technology and, and, and using it. Actually, if, it depends on what you mean by leader. If you want to talk about sheer number and regularity of use, mm-hmm. uh, we're probably more than Israel on just sheer number of UAVs, but I think Israel could rival us in terms of the kind of capabilities. Uh, most impressive, Israel's coming online with a 737-size UAV that's notionally going to be used for uh, surveillance applications. But the cargo applications, you know, I could actually see this 737-size UAV immediately replacing some FedEx and UPS flights. Related, but how do you, how do you think the institutional conservatism of our government and our armed forces plays into this debate? I think... There has been a lot of reluctance, but there also has been, you know, enormous R&D um, devoted to this in recent years. It's an interesting case study because the UAV technology has actually been around in the U.S. government for about 30 years, and you could actually argue even further back with some of the the drones that they were using um, in Vietnam for targets and whatnot. But the military is actually slowing down the progression of UAVs in, in the system. I know it seems kind of counterintuitive, even though you think increasingly money is being put into UAVs, although this year we saw a decline. I think I read about 13%. You'll see a 13% decline in UAV expenditures over the next year. Mm-hmm. So we are spending a lot of money, but the systems that we actually have deployed are what I would consider as an academic to be fairly 
immature systems. They're still relatively simplistic in some of their operations as compared to what they could be. And what I mean by that is we still, for example, the Air Force generally flies their UAVs with a pilot in the seat, with a pilot controlling it, making the plane go left and right. They do have some global hawks that they can put on almost purely pre-programmed missions, but there's just a few of them, and they're fairly reluctant to to let the computers guide the majority of missions. So, Why is that? Is that because the technology isn't good enough or because we're not ready for it to be good enough? I personally believe that it's because, especially in the case of the Air Force, that they're fighting their pilot culture. The Air Force Mm -hmm. is predominantly pilots. I mean, that's what they've been for the last 50 years. And so it's actually going to revolutionize the Air Force. In fact, I think now they're just starting to train. They have more pilots that are UAV pilots than they actually do fixed wing or bomber fighter pilots. So it will be... What does that mean, UAV pilots? Well, right, that's that's a great (laughs) question. It really means, truthfully, it means they're an operator. Okay. They're not really a pilot. They're just guiding the vehicles along. And in fact, one of the problems that the Air Force has had is it's, it's actually pretty boring to be a UAV pilot. If you're actually flying it from Creech, Nevada, mm-hmm. and you're flying one in an Iraq or Afghanistan mission, what you do is you pretty much just sit there for 12 hours while you watch this thing circle in the sky. And they there was some discussion about letting the pilots try to land the planes or take off the planes themselves, um, either remotely or they actually have some people in theater do it. And for the most part, it turns out that this is where the majority of accidents were happening on takeoff and landing. And so, uh, but this is just for the Air Force. So the Air Force recently released an edict saying that they wanted to have auto land and takeoff capability retrofitted onto these aircraft, which curiously is not a problem that the Army has had. From day one, all the Army's UAVs had auto land and takeoff capability and as a consequence, they haven't lost nearly as many due to human error in these areas, right? But mm-hmm. it, and, and there's no real technical difference other than the decision to have or have not that auto land and takeoff capability. And what you'll find is the Army didn't have the pilot culture that the Air Force did. And that's actually, so it's a basically a socio-technical cause of that problem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Is it a good thing, you think, that, you know, the military has been reluctant to, um, or, you know, the Air Force has been reluctant to allow the technology to, to develop as quickly? I mean, it, it seems kind of simplistic to say good or bad, but in your opinion, do you think that 
the, the conservatism of the government as well as, as, as the Air Force and um, has, has been a good thing to kind of check the rapid development of, of these technologies? I, you know, again, I don't want to, it's hard to put a qualifier like good or bad on this. I actually think that the government's response has been appropriate. Okay. Right? Because this is a relatively new technology and we're still working a lot of the kinks out in terms of what to do uh, for emergencies or contingency planning. And oftentimes with a lot of these technologies, it's not really the technology that is the problem. It's how we use the technology. And so in the actual development of concepts of operation, I think that actually takes people time. It takes people time to understand what they can and can't do with it, with the technology. And so in terms of the progression of the UAV technology in the military, I personally believe it could go much faster than it is going. That doesn't mean I think it should go faster. Uh, there's cert- believe me, there's certain aspects that I wish would go faster. Uh, like what? Well, they have the KMAX helicopter is flying in Afghanistan right now, and um, they don't have the ability to remotely turn on or off the engines. A person actually has to run up to this robotic oh. helicopter to turn it on and off, and you know, I actually think it's probably a better idea that we put some more advanced remote start and capabilities on there for safety purposes. I would like to see more coordinated flight between UAVs. It's It's been well established in the research communities for several years that UAVs can talk to each other and basically set up deconfliction not only between themselves but potentially with other manned aircraft in the airspace. And in fact, uh, we, we've been so slow in this country to address that issue, both in the military and with the FAA. There was recently an FAA bill that was passed that is now mandating that the FAA has to start addressing these issues. There's actually a possibility that when you get all these sensors on board these aircraft and uh, flying in the airspace, that the aircraft could actually deconflict better than we could if we were relying on uh, air traffic ground controllers. Because sensors actually do have 360 degrees of capability, whereas if you have a pilot in the plane, very hard to see out of those tiny windows in a passenger jet. So it may be that the unmanned aircraft technologies that we're developing will actually then help manned aircraft as well and potentially increase the overall throughput of the national airspace. How soon do you think that this technology will proliferate into the private sector? I mean, I know it's a huge question, but um, how? what's the state of it now? And um, I mean, how soon do you think it'll be before uh, you know non-state actors get a hold of this technology? There's no reason now that a non-state actor couldn't be in this game, right? Okay. They can go to Amazon.com and but weaponizing these drones. Well, again, it just takes a very clever student to, or you know, person who is a who goes and uh, you know, just as a techie, somebody who likes to fiddle around with these things. It would not be that difficult for a non-state actor right now to weaponize a small Cessna, to weaponize a remote-controlled aircraft that could be bought in a kit and built wherever. So, But if we're talking about on a larger-scale proliferation where we're talking about lots of civilians that may or may not be non-state actors, in this country, that will not happen until the FAA gets a handle on the regulations for how to operate these things, when they can operate it, who they can operate it. Right now, you as a hobbyist, you yourself could go out and buy one and fly it around below 400 feet. And, but, they, and they have cameras on them. And yeah. Oh, yeah. You could be spying on your neighbor right, right. now, uh, following your boyfriend around. Right. And uh, there's nothing. There's no rule that prevents you from doing that. 
But if you try to then take your service and become the UAB private investigator and go follow people around for money, that is forbidden because under these rules, this is just for hobbyists. Commercial people can't do that. But the problem with those rules are that they prevent companies from uh, investing in these technologies to do things like agricultural monitoring, which would benefit the community hugely, right? John Deere needs these kind of technologies. Mm -hmm. Farmers need these kind of technologies. Some, uh, the Customs and Border Patrol, they have some uh, UAVs that go down and do surveillance, but we could imagine that that would be a lot more successful. Private companies could get into that game if the FAA would figure out how to develop the regulations to do that. So I think, in fact, there's a huge industry, a commercial industry, that is just begging to be developed, but we can't develop that community until the FAA gets the regulation issue squared away. I personally believe that it's, it's great this bill that was passed was critical, but other countries are making much more substantial gains in the UAV market, the UAV commercial civilian market, ahead of the U.S. The because they don't have the issues that we do. They have less regulatory issues okay. than we do. What are you afraid of in this space? What concerns you about it moving forward as somebody who works in the field? What worries me, you know, I, I actually don't worry too much about it. You know, I'm a technologist, so I am excited about the use of the technology and the growth of this technology because I can't, I do think it will change many aspects of life that we never thought about in the past. But I think that in, for specifically talking about UAV technology, I do see that there could be an abuse of privacy. You following your boyfriend around. Mm -hmm. My students are always trying to send my their UAV to buy on me in my office, you know, so I can, you know, I, my personal privacy is, is an issue, uh, but I think we should remember it's not just a UAV issue. Uh, at MIT and other universities, people are develop, developing bug-size UAVs that could crawl underneath your door with a camera. Yeah, Dark Buzz doing that. That's right. You know. so, so I think it's actually, it's a statement more about the development of robotic technology in general uh, than just UAVs, but if you can mount tiny cameras on birds that can sit, what look like birds, sit outside your window and you will have no idea that that bird that's sitting outside your window is a fake bird, and that technology is available today, you know, we could be in a whole brave new world in the next 10 years. It's available today, but would you say it's being, you know, used widely commercially, or is this just kind of like an artificial environment at your university, for example? Well, it's not commercially because because of those rules that I told you about. Yeah. So, so there can't be any commercialization of it. Uh, I suspect it's it's still happening, um, maybe at the university level, and, and even maybe some small companies who are experimenting with the technology. So I do think the capability is there. So, again, this is the problem with the regulatory agencies. By not addressing it, you don't actually solve the problem, so people will still find nefarious ways to use technology. So it's actually more important for us to address these issues now so that we can get a handle on as these technologies continue to develop. It is possible if everybody out there were to go buy a Brookstone UAV and control it on, their, on your iPhone, we would have a mess outside uh, when we looked up in the air. So we really need to think about how we're going to do that. I'd like to kind of end with how I started. Would you like to share any anecdotes from your time in the Navy? I know you wrote a book about it. Anything that you'd like to share that our you know listeners might be interested in? Oh, it, being one of the first female fighter pilots, it was definitely a social experiment more than anything, right? It just goes back to, you know, women are just as capable pilots than men, but there was a huge resistance to women. It's kind of funny because there's a huge resistance to UAVs, right? It's like any when anything new right. gets 
introduced into an environment like that, there's a, a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance. And I did have uh, somebody say to me once, it was a senior officer, and he said to me after we had come back from a bombing mission, and he said, you know, it, don't take this the wrong way, but you know, fundamentally the reason I, I'm not happy about this situation is if you can go out and drop bombs as good as I can, and you're a woman, what does that make me? Wow. And I think that's really, but I think that's insightful both for my time in the military as a pilot, but also when we start talking about technology in these ways. And this is actually why you see the commercial aviation industry so resistant to the fact that, and one day we will not have commercial pilots as we know them flying our LA to DC routes anymore. But fundamentally it raises that question about value of self. If that computer can do it, what does that make me? Does it concern you in some ways that as we're using more drone technology, you know, it, it's, in a, it's controlled by a smaller number of people, a smaller number of hands, a smaller number of minds, um, as opposed to many, many pilots who are responsible for conducting a mission or something like that? Does it concern you that um, it's kind of the field is really growing, but it's narrowing at the same time? Yes, I think that that, that is true in, if, if we think about the way that we're organized in today's world, but I think what that means is we'll just reorganize to adapt to the technology. One of the areas that it's absolutely not growing, uh, I'm sorry, not shrinking, is actually the number of people needed to analyze all the videos. That number has exploded. We do not have enough people in, the, in our services today even in the contractors that we can hire to analyze all the video feeds that we're getting from all the UAVs mm -hmm. in Afghanistan and Iraq. I think I read somewhere that about 90% of that video goes into an archive and is never looked at again. So the question is, where do we really need people? Allocation of resources. That's right. We don't need people anymore to fly these things because the computers are good enough to fly themselves. We need a lot more coaches. We need a lot more people doing strategy. We need a lot more planners. We need a lot more analysts, right? So, and depending on what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, where you might see this have a more of a reduction effect is actually in a place like airspace control. You know, one day the national airspace will be a lot more automated than it is right now. Mm -hmm. I think air traffic controllers are unhappy about that. I think they do see what's coming down the pike. But the question is, is that a bad thing? Well, where will those people go? I think overall what we're going to see in this country and in, in other countries um, that embrace these technologies, we're going to see the growth of experience and training and the need for smarter people. And so I think what we'll do is we'll see people being raised up to be from, from early on in grade school, they'll be smarter with, and more tech-savvy than we were. But what about um, you know, other, other roboticized um, elements of warfare? I don't know if you work on uh, you know, roboticizing tanks, things like that, um, or like you mentioned, humanoid robots, but what is the, what's the state of play in, in, in that? Aspect. The military has done a great job of looking across the spectrum okay. of vehicles, for example, and trying to see what that they could make robotic or not. And I know of programs where tanks, they're looking at tanks uh, as robots, uh, heavy lift vehicles as robots. In fact, I, you would actually argue these would be the right places to do it because these are really dull and potentially dangerous missions. And all you have to do is look halfway around the world and go look at Australia and there's a company Rio Tinto that's doing some amazing work in mining with mm -hmm. robots. They have uh, automated these huge automated trucks 
that just shuttle rocks back and forth. They have automated drills. In fact, in a lot of ways, the commercial industry on the ground is a lot further ahead than the U.S. military. And I would say that's, again, because of that conservative, overly conservative value. I think we're we're definitely lagging where we could be in the development of robotic heavy vehicles. And, you know, everywhere in between, you know, can we have a robotic Jeep? Can we have a, my favorite project is a, a project called DARPA's Transformer Project. Yeah. They have this great little vehicle that you could, it's a car and then you can strap some wings on and then it's a plane and you could, and the wings could uh, take. Straight the, out of a sack. Right. You, they could be taken off and put on a medical carrier and the wings, they have like seven different vehicles that the wings could strap onto for different purposes and you know, when you see, and this is actually something that's going to be built and flown. It, it probably, in the, I think, by 2015. By 2015. By 2015, you we will have a car that can be modified from a car to a plane wow. with the strapping on of some wings. Wow. And once that happens, then the question is, will we move into that Jetsons age? When will we all jump in our cars and fly to work? I mean, it's still pretty far off in the future. Mm-hmm in terms of an everyday life, but the technology's here. The question is just money. And right now, um, we're only using really the, the, the UAV um, technology on our battlefields, right? We're not going oh, really use- oh, no, there, I mean, there's a lot of ground robots, okay. you know, that do surveillance, and uh, potentially there's some lethal ground robots out there that could do some firing on their own. A lot of mining and demining have, have a lot of robots in it. Lots of underwater little sneaky robots are, are out there. Um, one just has to look at special forces. You could imagine anywhere where you see the special forces, you could probably guess that they're using some of the latest and greatest cutting-edge technology, air, ground, surface, and under the water. But you just have to look at space, too. You know, the Mars rovers were fantastically successful. Yeah. And robots are revolutionizing the way we think about space. I think the day of the astronaut is actually on the decline as well. I don't think we'll ever get rid of our astronauts completely, but... What we need them to do and... and Yeah, I mean, you know, in the end... Will be different. Is space really that friendly towards humans, or can we find out a lot more, a lot cheaper, and a lot safer by using robots? Right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.